Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. And as you can see, we're going to jump right into it. I am joined by guest Spencer Schneider, and he is the author of a, uh, well, let's check out this title, Manhattan Cult Story, My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crimes, Chaos, and Survival. And with that title, I was intrigued. I was absolutely sold right from the get-go there. Reached out to Spencer and said, hey, how'd you like to come on my show and talk about your experience with this group? And he agreed to do so. So Spencer, thank you for doing so and welcome to my show. Thank you for having me. It's my honor to be here to talk to you. Awesome. Well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm honored as well. Now, you are a person who practice law out in Long Island, and you are also a professional lifeguard and teacher of lifeguards. Is that right? That's right. Um, I've been a lawyer since 1987, and I practice in Manhattan and uh, also in Long Island. I do corporate litigation. And um, after I left the cult, which is the subject of my book, I became uh, um, a lifeguard. I trained to become a lifeguard, and then I um, opened up a lifeguard school. Awesome. Awesome. Well, in a way, metaphorically as well, you know, we are lifeguards out there trying to prevent people from getting drowned in cults. And, uh, and that's what, you know, that's what my channel here is all about. And on that note, I, uh, I think already we can see that we are busting the trope that you have to be a stupid idiot to join a cult because you clearly are not that. Uh, have you run into that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, people, I mean, that's, I think, uh, what I wanted to explain to folks uh, um, was that um, it doesn't matter what your background is or, or uh, your circumstances that you could be dragged into and allured into a, a cult or any kind of um, abusive situation. Um, irrespective of, you know, whatever your background is. And in fact, I should add on this point, which is that one of the reasons I didn't think I was in a cult mm -hmm. was because, uh, and I'm sure you felt the same in your experience and others in uh, non-traditional cults in the sense of we weren't, you know, blood sucking, you know, uh, worshiping some demon or some, you know, what, or that we were on a compound somewhere. We weren't. We were living our lives. And um, since the group that I was in, the cult I was in, didn't fit any of those criteria, I figured, okay, I'm not in a cult. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. There were two things about your experience I found uh, fascinating right from the get-go, which was the length of time it took to actually acclimate you into the situation because you didn't even really meet your cult leader, if I have this right, for about a year. That's correct. And the fact that it was very bright, intelligent, philosophically minded people that you were connecting with. And it appeared to really be kind of some kind of philosophical intellectual club that you were going to. And as I, as I understand it, you were sort of semi-recruited into this by a friend or, or, or an associate? Yeah, I was recruited into it by someone who I didn't know that well. Um, uh but he, I knew him as, you know, extremely bright, you know, highly educated, going to some of the top colleges in the world. And um, we had had great conversations about things, although they were a little odd in that, that he got personal and, 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 and took kind of, uh, a, a, you know, a very deep interest in me that I found, you know, a little unusual, mm -hmm. but he just seemed, you know, earnest and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, the, the, the group were, you know, people were, you know, are highly educated and that was what they targeted. So they, their pitch, um, if you will, was designed for people like myself and yourself also. Mm, thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, that's and that's that is a fascinating thing in the same way that Scientology will market itself as uh, to its to its own membership as um, what we want is we want to make the able 
more able. That's how they describe their target demographic. They don't want to go down and deal with the insane or the bums on the street or, you know, people out there who don't have money. In other words, it's sort of right. coded, coded language, really. But, but right. it's, you know, but it's appealing to this sort of highbrow, intellectual-minded kind of person, a reader. You have to be a reader to get into Scientology. And you had, um, the, if, if I remember this right, you were sort of, uh, they were dropping names of philosophers you'd never heard of before. <laughs> I'd, I'd never right. heard of these names. Who were, who were these people and what was, how, how did this, this inlet sort of work for you? How, what, what happened with you? Well, I was a philosophy major in college and then I went to law school. And let's say by this point, I was uh, 29, several years out of law school already. Uh, you know, it was in the late 80s in New York. And um, they uh, told me that, number one, this, this group was secret, that it was an esoteric school and that it existed in order to help people um, uh, get what's known as a second education which had to do with one's, you know, spiritual life. Oh, okay? that's interesting. That's interesting. Right. And the name of this was really just the school. School. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it all sounded, in one respect, extremely suspicious. Um, but also, you know, um, kind of dull in a way. Right. Nothing um, particularly odd. It was certainly interesting because they mentioned these two philosophers who I'd never heard of, um, Gurdjieff and Espensky, who I think a lot of your listeners will rec may recognize. Uh, they were the fourth way adherents, well known in the 60s. Calling them philosophers would probably be like calling L. Ron Hubbard, uh, you know, a savior. Got it. Yeah. Or a messiah. Right. Uh, I think the only people who think that are him and maybe his followers, right. but there's not much to um, them. Uh, certainly that what they had to say was interesting and whatnot, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself. I didn't know them. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and so there's I a little think, bit of a mystery created there. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, what are all these people gathering around, these clearly intelligent people talking, debating, whatever, you know, intellectualizing about this? And and it's and the thing I find so fascinating about this is there was not a lot of love bombing, as we call it, right? Where you're getting gratuitous amounts of admiration and and awe and and love and this kind of thing to get you involved. It was more of a it was more presented as this intellectual pursuit. So it was non-religious in nature and it wasn't immediately talking to you about spirituality or improvement or something. It was really just kind of this dullish kind of intellectual thing. Yeah. Yeah. Although there was this personal element to it, which it wasn't, I didn't recognize it as love bombing, but I guess you could say it was, but it was not, it wasn't, you know, I mean, there was this element. I don't know how to characterize it, really, if it's on the extreme spectrum of it or not. But certainly what I noticed at the beginning as they were recruiting me. And um, by the way, I did not know the recruiting system involved this kind of show that they put on for me, mm. which was the person who first told me about it, asked me to meet one of another member. And the other member was a woman who was extremely beautiful um, and also very bright. And they, the two of them, we went out for a drink um, and the two of them just had this tight relationship that seemed so um, uh, unusual and special. and the depth of their interest in me, especially her interest in me um, and my, you know, psychological, spiritual life, which I really wasn't in touch with or aware about, was quite um, uh, breathtaking in a way and alluring. Mm -hmm. There we um, go. 
So there was there was that thing, you know, and I saw this relationship between the two of them. I didn't know if they were like sleeping with each other or what, but it was something intense. Right. There's this deep connection there that you noticed. Yeah. And it was interesting. Okay, what is this? You know, yeah, that that became a draw by itself because you were not, you know, there's this classic idea. And it's and it is a well-founded idea that a lot of people will get into these groups or get involved in a in a high control or authoritarian group because they are experiencing some massive change, trauma, loss, significant mental or emotional experience that has them reeling a bit or confused or upset. And this group will come and offer support, succor, help, you know, uh, assistance of some kind. And people will gravitate toward that or or seek that and need that. But you are not really in a needy kind of a situation, if I re- if I have this right, yeah? Not really. I mean, I think I was um, disenchanted uh, in my work in the sense that I was working so much and I was reassessing, like, well, was this corporate law thing a good idea? I'm working all the time. I'm not having any fun. And I was sort of reassessing what what would give me meaning in my life. Ah. Um, but I wasn't, I I was certainly looking for something more, but it wasn't necessarily a group or anything, certainly nothing spiritual and definitely not a cult. That's for sure. Right, right. Well, I, not too many people are looking for that, unfortunately. Exactly. Because it's presented as something else. And I'm only harping on these beginning points a little bit because this is an interesting thing that, you know, how covert the recruitment can be. This is one of the things that I was absolutely fascinated by your story is how how not almost non-eventful, not again, that not heavy duty love bombing, not as not a situation where you felt you were in crisis in your life. I Certainly, you know, we're not, you were not happy with things and you wanted to make a change. But that's a that's a that's something I think a lot of people would be willing to fess up to. Very different from a full blown crisis in your life or something like right. that, you know. But right. You, well, mm-hmm. yeah, no, they were very sophisticated um, in their recruiting. Very selective, very selective um, in terms of who they wanted in it because they wanted people with money. And yes. um uh, but they really took their time building it up for you. Yes, yes, because that's they what, asked a lot. Yeah. They asked a lot. They asked us to keep it secret. Right. And that was a very big ask um, for a lot of people. And if I hadn't have trusted him that much, I wouldn't have even considered anything like that. And you know, the cult exists to this day, and yet they manage, and they somehow manage to get people to um, maintain its secrecy and to not look online. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with that because, uh, you know, of course, in Scientology, the thought policing that goes on, right. is, it's the most powerful form of thought policing there is, is when you can be convinced to police yourself because that's when they don't have to be watching you 24 seven. You're watching yourself 24 seven and, you know, keeping it secret, keeping, you know, don't look at all that stuff. You know, if you have those walls put in place yourself, it's all good. You're, you're, you're going to be a good secure cult member. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, that's a hundred percent right. If if it's within you and you're indoctrinated and really believe it, then they don't have to worry. And we were, yeah, you know, exactly. Well, let's talk about how we got there. So how? So you're involved in this thing, and 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 after about a year of, now you were just kind of going and having these discussions with these people about mildly interesting philosophic matters, and then. I guess about a year in, you lost your job, and that's when things sort of sort of sped up the process. Or what what happened exactly there? Yeah, sure. So um, it was actually I lost my job sooner, mm. but the, the like you say, there were moder- moderately interesting meetings that we met twice a week in a in a loft in Tribeca, 
And um, like with the first meeting I went to, I noticed that folks were, you know, like me, you know, they were well-educated people coming from jobs wherever downtown. And, uh, you know, um, it was just arranged as a, as a sort of a classroom in this nondescript loft. And we sat around and there were two leaders who spoke about uh, Gertchev and Spensky. We read the books. We came in with questions about the books, and then we started to talk a little bit about our personal lives. And everyone, you know, brought in questions, and the idea was to apply the ideas to your life. And in the first month, um, I lost my job, and that was a crisis for me. Mm. Um, and they were extremely supportive to me that first night. I'll, I'll never forget that. And encouraged me to, um, you know, open my own law practice, which I did. And that alone really uh, snared me in a certain way because I felt that the support and love that this group gave me, gave me the strength to carry on. And I felt I owed my initial success to this connection with them. And I was afraid, you know, I became to be, I, I came to be afraid that if I left the group, I would lose that support and my business would um, go away. This was a fear that carried me along for a long time. I certainly understand that. Um, and that fear of loss is a very real thing when you, when these are your allies, these are your, this is your support system in a way. Which I, right. which it sounds like this sort of became for you, right? Interesting. Right. I mean, they became a support system unlike anything I had had before because, uh, you know, they were extremely um, non-judgmental and forgiving and lovely and kind and, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, it's not really a great example, but I mean. We were always, we always had new recruits coming in later on when I was in. And we were, went out of our way to be kind and, and non-judgmental and supportive of people who came to the group. And if they didn't use the right language, because the group had its own language, like all cults, you know. And if people didn't know the exact language, well, we would correct them gently and tell them, well, no, you really should be saying it this way. And they'd be all thankful and grateful. And you could see how happy they'd get. And, you know, they were kind of like the little kids, you know, like your little brother, you'd be really nice to them. And then when they're older, you could start abusing and harassing and beating them, the shit out of them. Right. Uh, right. I, don't know. I just said a bad word. Am I allowed to say no, that? Totally fine. Yeah. This, okay. uh, it's, we're, 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 we're a not safe for work podcast. No, we're not safe. So, in other words, that's love bombing. We would just be like, you know, but just at, at such a subtle level. That's what I'm fascinated by about this. Is it is it's almost an intellectual love bombing in a way, you know? And cults tend to be a bit more sloppier about that kind of thing, you know, a very obvious, very uh, even obnoxious levels of flattery and that kind of thing. And it it seems like your experience was a bit more muted. Yes, I. Yes, and I took great pains to try to write it and explain it that way. It was a very slow burn. Right, which is also um, unusual because they weren't hitting you up within the first couple of days or weeks. This really slowly rolled out. Yeah, and I think that's why they were effective with a lot of people. I, I um, think so, too. And, and um, I, I, again, not everybody would stay. Uh, people would leave and... Uh, it was always people, um, new people leaving. But once they had you for a year or so, you know, you would tend to stay longer. And, you know, if you were in for two decades, like uh, myself, it's, it's almost unheard of that people would leave after such a <laughs> Right, length. after such a commitment. Yeah. So about, what did you say it was about a year or so before Sharon actually made her first appearance in your life? That's right. So the leader, her name was Sharon Gans. Um, she did not appear for about a year. Um, we had other leaders um, 
the main one being Fred Mendel. Mm. And, um, you know, we didn't know much about Fred. I didn't even know his last name. I just knew um, he was uh, like, you know, the leader of the group. That's all we knew about him. The other thing is we never, there was this very strict rule of not fraternizing with people outside of the group. Oh, so, what's that now? Is that, did that, did that get put into place for you early on? Right away. I mean, that was a key thing was that we were prohibited from talking to anybody um, who was not in the group about the group. So spouses. Oh, about the group about itself. Spouses. Got it. The first right. rule of fight club is don't tell anybody about fight club. Exactly. But if you saw somebody else who was in fight club on the street, you would pretend you didn't know them. Right. Just not even and, acknowledging their existence. And you didn't call up anybody else on Fight Club in Fight Club. And I, you didn't know what anybody else did. We didn't know what anybody else did. We didn't know any people's last names. I didn't have any numbers or anything. When class was over at night, we were to follow an hour of silence and meditate on what was said in class and not go, not share cabs or anything like that. You know? How interesting. Yeah. So they wanted people only. And, and it was the idea was, well, you're forming special relationships with people here, um, not life relationships, but, you know, work friendships. And that's different. That's a better relationship. It's a deeper relationship. And you know what? There was something to be said about that. You know, um, we didn't talk to other people about like our daily life issues, which you know, I mean, that's actually the whole point of friendships, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it sounds very, very interesting that way. So the idea was that it was a focused activity where you were there to learn, to grow, to, you know, uh, talk about these things, meditate on them. But it was not a meetup.com group where you're going to fraternize and socialize with these folks outside of that situation. Uh, no, although they did hold up that possibility if you later on wanted to, you know, meet up with somebody uh, romantically or whatnot, you had to ask for permission. Got it. Okay. Interesting. And sometimes Which, it would... Which was ultimately sought by many people, right. and that led to a lot of marriages um, that people sought out, but also with the leader um, setting up people and arranging marriages and sort of taking people apart um, from marriages. Like I was in an arranged marriage, um, and um, which had very special stresses on it because of um, the ostracizing rule, which is that if anyone left the group you know the marriage would end right right um, which i'm sure you sounds familiar to I, you my marriage ended when i left the sea org i completely get it uh, right you know i've since remarried to somebody who's never had any cult experience and That's good yeah whole different life now you know but but very much when i left the sea org i was leaving my wife too and that was that was a known thing for me and and i was married to her for 17 years in the sea org right uh, so I totally get that. Um, so when did, so, you, so, so this kind of, you know, salon meeting activity, a bit intrusive, a bit, you know, kind of weird, but not, uh, not outrageously so. When does it start, when do, in your experience of this, does things start kind of getting weird and what, yeah. and what happened? Well, I, I, that's a good question because I didn't answer the previous one, which was Sharon Gans, and that's when it did get weird. <laughs> um, now, I should say I liked it a lot, you know, in that year. I liked the support. I liked the people. I didn't think it was weird. I thought it was kind of cool. I had this, like, little secret group, and the the philosophy and thoughts that Gertrude had, although I had some difficulty with them, Overall, by and large, I liked, and I could see that other people in the group uh, liked them and um, seemed to be helping people in their life, giving them confidence. And I liked the leader also, the leaders at the time. But then one night, a, a, a strange woman appeared. We had no idea who it was. They didn't introduce us and um, finally explained that this was their teacher, 
<laughs> and the leader of the group. Um, we just told her name was Sharon. We didn't know anything about her. She didn't say anything about her. She looked really odd. Um, and um, she, she looked was, odd. Yeah, I mean, she had a very uh, her appearance. I thought she was nuts. I mean, she had a bizarre appearance. She she had this. Um, first of all, she was much older than us. We were like all in our early thirties. She was probably in her sixties, which is what how old I am now. So she was an old lady, right? And, <laughs> that's so funny. And then and but she kind of dressed like she was. Um, in a Shakespearean play, um, just like, a, you know, just this odd, very, you know, flamboyant, um, mm -hmm. like a queen. And she carried herself in this regal way. Um, uh, she had very bright red hair and these deep blue eyes and very pasty skin. And um, she was shown such deference by our leader, Fred, that it was very, un you know, it was an uncomfortable situation. Um, um, uh, you know, it was just, it was an odd appearance. So, um, you know, um, we, we ended up, you know, I, a lot of people left after they saw her actually, ah. a number of people left. And I think they kept her away from us for a while because I think she understood that, um, people would either, re, you know, have very strong reactions to her. I think that was what she knew. Now, we didn't know anything about her because there was no internet. So I hadn't known her history and that this group had a very sordid past and a very bad history of mm. being uh, in San Francisco, being accused of being a cult, and then kind of run out of town from San Francisco. And they restarted in New York. But really underground i didn't know any of that uh, right you, know. you would have had to have literally either gone to san francisco known to go to san francisco or done some sort of deep newspaper archive search or something in order to be able to find that back in 1989 1990 yeah there's no, there was no way i did a lexus search but i didn't know her last name um i had done a lexus search of you know fourth way gertschiff but there was no real information out there that i could fine quickly right right so so okay so her her very appearance is enough to turn some people off but you stuck with it and what what happened after that well um you know she proved to me to be someone who although you know a little nutty and a little scary and intimidating to be able to have the ability to make you feel um, empowered mm. and strong mm. and really feel confident about yourself. And that was the sense that I got from her. Oh, that's interesting. You and know, and was it. that just through conversation with her that you would feel this way? Or what, what could you describe that well, more? Well, it was all very formal. I didn't have any direct conversation with her. Oh, okay. Alone. It was only in, in, in the class, which was about 60 people. And you could, you know, ask a question or, you know, to her. And, and if you had the, the guts to, you know, ask her a question directly when she was there, because she wasn't there all the time. She would come once in a while. Um, but I, I did ask and, you know, um, she was extremely positive towards me um and others and at least initially mm. you know this was sort of a new round of love bombing if you will um it took time till it turned um the big turning point i guess came in about a year and a half so just about the same time we met sharon was that we were asked to start recruiting other people and we learned sort of this recruitment manual that they had of who they would recruit and how and oh. it was very surreptitious and very um, uh, sophisticated. Interesting. And this, was, and this was literally a manual? Well, I call it a manual um, because... I mean, we had manuals in Scientology. That's why I ask. I mean, it's, been, it's a very documented cult, Scientology yeah. is. But so we that's why have, I, you know, when you say things didn't like have, that. No, no, we didn't actually have a manual, but... okay. 
it was, I call it a manual in the book. And I did keep take notes when we were taught how to do recruiting, which we call third line of work, which is a very particular phrase that Gertrude and Espensky had mm. uh, about recruiting. And, um, you know, I took notes and I lay it out in my book. You know, I call it the recruiting ma- recruitment manual because it pretty much was. And it's, you know, several pages of the criteria of who we look for, how we would meet them, how to talk to them. And it's basically how to vet and lure them at the same time because we were very specific requirements. People had to make a certain amount of money. Um, people had to look a certain way. We, you know, they discriminate against black people and gay people. Um, oh, that's um, interesting. So there were no uh, African Americans or blacks in the group at all. No, no. What about other um, any other minorities allowed, or was it just white people? It was mostly white. I think a few um, Asian people, a few here and there, but they were. Sharon was also very uh, homophobic, um, and uh, if we did recruit people who were gay, they had to have an ambivalence about their um, identity and agree to Sharon's um, version of conversion. Oh wow! She would marry off. Um, gay people, straight people. And, and this was kind, kind of an insidious, one of the more insidious things that she did among many other horribles. Right. Uh, right. But so that was, that was really the, um, uh, I mean, but there was a whole other bunch of criteria, mostly about how much you made and, and whatnot and how we would talk to people and sort of gain their confidence. And, um, uh, and then ultimately, you know, make it uh, an, an invitation to them, just like we had been given. And it was a secret one. Right. So when you when you were learning this process and starting to engage with it, did you relate it back to your own recruitment process as to what happened with you? Did you see how that played out according to Yeah, it was the same thing. Okay. It was the same thing. There was some slight differences because of just the circumstances, but basically it was the same thing. And it's what they do now. Right. So, Hey, if it works, you know, old ways are the best ways. What, um, how, how did the money work up until this point? Had you started paying into this thing and, or did that come later? No, um, the first month was free and then it was $300 a month. $300 $300 a month. Wow. For twice, for two meetings, like eight, eight meetings a month, basically. Right. Right. Huh. Okay. 300 bucks. And All then, right. and then there were additional fees. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like a terribly big amount. Um, well, you're all, you're all upper crust working professionals. So you exactly. know, it's targeted to be, you know, a nice amount for, it's not nothing, but it's certainly right. not any, you could certainly afford it. Right. But it was enough so that the leader made over a million dollars a year. Just on those membership fees. Yeah. Cash. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. And, you know, there were other things that she received, sought and received through the years. You know, there were people who wouldn't make a bonus and she would say, well, where's my half or why don't you give it to me since I helped you get the bonus by helping you with your job. And why don't I have um, my own access to a private jet? Uh, Why don't I have these jewels and this and that? And ultimately she, you know, she lived quite a a luxurious life, lots of real estate. Um, She passed away a year and a half ago, but you know, like Scientology, it, it goes on. Because they're, you know, absolutely it does. I mean, if there's money to be made and property to be had, then people will move it forward. Just like, right. just like with Scientology, David Miscavige took over after L. Ron Hubbard died, and he's and in some ways, arguably worse than L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, it, a hard argument to make, actually, because they're both awful in 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 different ways. But you know, but the idea of a you know of somebody else taking over is is uh, not uncommon at all. And uh, didn't he grow it? Didn't David Miscavige grow the organization? Not exactly. 
It's it's a little complicated. The the, okay. the heyday was actually just before he took over, but he sort of reestablished the central church's dominance and uh, did get their tax exemption back in 1993. They'd lost it covered, and that was his big move that that solidified his leadership. Yeah, got it. Okay. But interesting that even the Sea Org members, even the people like like myself who were in the Sea Org working at the fanatical cult level, uh, we were making 50 bucks a week. That was our pay. And when Miscavige's birthday rolls around every year, we were all expected to donate to it, you know, so that he would be purchased things uh, for Christmas, birthdays, other special occasions, right? We were always... Uh, at the pay line being coerced into giving that money over for him or other Scientology leading, you know, executives. So again, same, same, right? It's not, not dissimilar at all. Um, Interesting. So, so, so you meet her, you're getting involved in this recruitment process. You're just kind of becoming deeper and deeper involved in this thing. And uh, you mentioned this is when things start getting kind of weirder. What, Tell me what happened. Well, you know, I, I, my 23 years, I sort of split up into two halves, okay. right? Mm-hmm. The first half was I wanted to be there, and the second half I did not. Okay. Okay. Within okay. the first half, there were some crazy things that happened that um, certainly made me question things and made us all question. Mm. But we, meaning the group of people who were in it, were were really happy in the sense that we had this great community that was really unusual, and there were some real high times, you know, like some some fun, and uh, you know, cohesiveness and support and this great community. But you know, we did see Sharon um, switch from being extremely helpful and loving to her help, quote unquote, help being extremely harsh and um, very manipulative, uh, yelling at people, um, you know, just uh, demanding that they follow her instructions about all kinds of things and crossing boundaries that, you know, you would never let anybody cross. So she got involved in people's, you know, work lives and whatnot, but in a very deep way. And also in people's sex lives and marriages and, um, you know, um, she would break up couples and then have them recouple with other people. Um, She uh, encouraged um, uh, women to, um, instead of having abortions, give up their children to other families in the group. Again, you know, gay men were married off to straight women. Um, and there was just a sort of oppressive. She was an oppressive and frightening woman, but also could be, you know, extremely kind. But right. the turning point came, I think, at a certain point, like halfway came where several of my friends left the group. And um I was inclined to leave as well, but I didn't. And what kept me in were two things: my marriage, because my wife, my then wife, did she didn't want to she didn't want to leave. She wanted to stay in it, and I didn't want to lose the marriage. It had been it was pretty new. And the other thing was that I had just started to do work with someone, um, a client who was in the group, and although he wasn't, you know my biggest client i didn't really want to lose him um and uh i knew i would if i left so i figured oh i'll just put up with this for a while you know maybe i'll i'll just put my nose to the you know grindstone and get more involved in this and like it more and love it more and whatnot how but, did it? Um, how did it work that that one of the other members of the group was your client? Were the regulations about fraternizing or meeting outside the thing lessened over time, or as you got deeper in, or what, how did how did that work? Yeah, no, the, the the regulations didn't change, but there were opportunities you could ask Sharon, say, uh, "Oh look, 
you know, so he asked Sharon, well, can I do work with Spencer? Because, you know, he seems like a good lawyer and whatnot. Okay. So, so as long as Sharon gives her blessing, it's all good. Exactly. Got it. And how, how do you, how would you explain to somebody, um, how she could establish this level of domination or control over a person in terms of their life? Was it, uh, did it, 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 you were involved for years here and going to this class is twice a week. Were there lectures? Was it sermonizing or was it an open discussion format or how, how did this work where she became this authority figure for you and these other people? Yeah, it was always sermonizing, um, in a way. Um, I mean, the way she led classes, and again, she wasn't there all the time, mm -hmm. but the, the classes were pretty much the same where, you know, the leader would say, let's talk about this idea tonight. And people would bring in questions about the theoretical ideas of Gurdjieff and Espensky. You know, the, the, the main thing of Gurdjieff is this thing called self-remembering, um, which is supposedly the way towards consciousness. I mean, that's what the whole idea here was that, Gertrude and Nespensky said that mankind is asleep and the only way to awaken is by being in, in a fourth-way school such as theirs. Okay, so that's the transformation that's being sought. There's, an, there's a transformation or a transformative experience being looked for, and you're on the hook to get that. Exactly. Got it. Right. Okay, because that's what keeps you coming back. Exactly. So we think okay. we're trying to remember ourselves and... You know, he had certain levels of man. You know, there were seven levels of, of man. And oh, every, so this was a sort of ascended master kind of deal. You're rising up levels of, of yeah. awareness or ability? Um, consciousness. Consciousness. There we go. Okay. And, uh, it's Scientology, it's spiritual awareness and ability. <laughs> yeah. Same concept, though. You're, you're, you know, graduated series of steps you have to accomplish and and Scientology, it's it's so well formulated that it that there there are price rates for each level and this kind of thing. Um, sounds right. a little looser for you, but um, but tell me more. Tell me how this works. Well, yeah, no, I mean there were like seven levels of man, uh, you know, and most people are in the bottom three, um, but then you get to four or five or six or seven, uh, and and you know Sharon would say. You know, Christ and Buddha and Moses, they're all sevens. And uh, she said, while she wasn't quite there yet, she was close. Interesting. Interesting. So, Only because your first impression of her was, this is a weirdo. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I mean, there's an answer for everything, uh, Chris. I mean, to a lower man, a higher man appears weird. That's right. That's right. Oh, I, so, tell me all about it, man. I hear you. Yeah. So um, I think people, your listeners need to, I mean, you, I'm sure you, all of your people talk about this, but, you know, this sort of um, logic, uh, you know, common sense logic does not play in cults. Right. They have their own language and their own um, tricks to um, always make them right and you wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's just so many, I, I, you know, I'm sure you probably could write a book and whatever you have about it. I have. <laughs> I died. So there you go. Uh, yeah, totally. Just like you. I totally get it. Totally get it. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's sort of because it, because it, because the cult system is this sort of a closed loop system. And closed loop. Yeah. Right. That's once it. you're in it, there is no bringing outside stuff in. Everything sort of circular explains itself, right? And uh, exactly. and then the language reinforces it all. It's called loaded language. It's a it's loaded a very language. Very powerful, very powerful control right. mechanism is language, right? Because you literally control how a person thinks if you control the definitions and concepts that they're thinking with. Right, and we didn't understand the language as well as they could. And their part of the premise was that they knew more than we could. They could see us better than we could. And that basically, you know, there was even a saying that you're always wrong um, in connection with your next step. And that the teachers could see you better than you could, um, that you needed to give up your will to the, to the teacher, or you could never lie to them. 
Um, and you know, I, I mean, it was any independent thinking was viewed as, as, as a bad idea, not because we didn't want they, you know, the idea is that you would become independent thinking, but right now you just don't have that. So you have to think the way we give you a paradigm to think it's a whole brand new way to think and that eventually you'll have independent thinking, but for now, no. That is, that is so parallel. Uh, Hubbard, yeah. Hubbard would say we have to control people until they graduate up to a level where they can control themselves. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, again, the old ways are the best ways. These are old school control techniques, you know. This yeah, stuff. it's total yeah. fascist. It's like this yes. fascist uh, thinking very much anyhow yeah but that's so that's that's, that was kind of how you got reeled in and stuck there yes and that's when i say that like when i was there halfway through i figured oh let me double down on all of these ideas and you know i'm probably not doing them right yeah now that you know um um i'm here i'll make the best of it double down um become a more serious student because no one's ever a good enough student, you know, right. They, we, nobody was ever good enough unless they were the, you know, the, you know, favored one week and then next week they were a piece of shit. So, mm. so you had that, you had that sort of reputational balance going where you're in one week out the next trying yeah. to gain favor, get back the the status. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've read a lot about abusive relationships, people are abusive. Yep, it's called, it's called trauma bonding. Yeah, it was really quite strong, and it, it and it's um, um, it, that dynamic played out time and time again, um, and it was extremely painful because I saw other people going through it, I went through it, and ultimately, that's kind of why I got out. Because um, when I kind of woke up a little bit. Um, to the whole situation. I mean, I guess the, to answer like how and why I got out, I mean, number one, I did get divorced um, in 2010, although I didn't leave the cult until 2013. So that the, the fact that I was no longer married took away one big reason to be there. But certain things that happened with Sharon and I became extremely close with Sharon she seemed to um, have a great fondness for me for whatever reason. Um, I wasn't particularly giving her any, you know, cash or money or anything more than anybody else. But for whatever reason, I was part of her inner circle. And, um, you know, I go into this in the book more about like how that happened and what it was like. You know, she, you know, I was like her chauffeur at one point. You oh, know? wow. Uh, so, you know, um, we, we spent a lot of time and, um, together alone outside of the group, part of the, the group also had, um, Sharon would take us to her retreat, her ranch in Montana, oh, she really? had a 50 acre ranch in Montana, which she would take some of the favored students to that group, to the ranch, you know, once a summer. Um, and so I spent a lot of time there with her and with other people. So, uh, you know, I felt this sort of special bond to her, but at, at a certain point, I just saw that she didn't really give a shit about me too much and was happy to let bad things happen to me from the group without her, uh, showing any real concern. And so eventually I just sort of I saw that going on. I was also having a nervous breakdown um, and was having suicidal ideations, which is not a good thing. Mm. And um, I got myself to a therapist. um, And then I started, although I didn't speak with him about the, uh, about the group. I, I actually, for the first time told other people about the group and I broke the first rule of fight club. Exactly. And once I did that, you know, it was like people were like, this doesn't sound so good, Spence, you know. And then all the people who I had left, all my friends who I had left in the years, earlier years, were now like, 
they were there for me all of a sudden. And so that was good. I kind of rediscovered those friendships. And then I created new friendships at about the time I was leaving because I joined the swim team. That's the swimming piece. Ah. piece. And I joined the swim team. Uh, I'd always been a swimmer, but I'd never been on a team. And that gave this sort of new community that I had and a sort of allowed me to have a sort of soft landing. I didn't realize that, but that's what it was. Right. Right. And then, um, you know, in January of 2013, you know, I told them I wasn't coming back. There was a lot of back and forth with them. They wanted me to stay. And, you know, I just said enough. Right. And that was it. I was in a bad place, but at least I was out. You know, exactly. And and, yeah. and you can just start, you know, crawling out of the hole that you've dug yourself into at that point. Right. I totally get that. And actually, 2013 is, you know, the year that I got out of Scientology. And uh, and it's been 10 years, you know, nine and a half years of of a lot of work to recover from that. You know, so uh, so I, I understand. What were you recovering from, would you say? I mean, how far down that rabbit hole did you go? And what did you, what were you experiencing at the, at the worst of this thing? Well, like I say, I mean, the biggest thing were, was suicidal ideation, you know, a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, obviously, I mean, I should just say, you know, when you talk about suicide, you know, just if people are listening and they have these issues, they should, there's help. You know, you could call 988. That's the, the suicide prevention hotline, and they'll talk to anybody confidentially 24 hours a day. And that is, uh, you know, I luckily was able to, you know, I found a very good um, psychiatrist. Um, and I mean, my 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 mind, you know, was sort of um, still in 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 the cult. My body was out, but my mind was there. All the ways I thought, they were all this framework of the quote work. And so uh, it was a very bleak out, you know, it's a very bleak mindset. And I had actually no self-esteem and um, was second guessing myself all the time. And I felt the best days were behind me. Among other things, <laughs> I did have other challenges, including, um, you know, having lost that client um, so he had become a very big client of mine. So I had to sort of restart my, my practice. Um, but the things that really changed it, you know, helped me were, you know, this camaraderie of, with swimmers, um, and my love for swimming and the beauty of it and the depth of, of meaning I found in that. And then getting real help from a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, helped me enormously. Um, and, um, like I say, you know, reconnecting with old friends and finding, you know, new meanings in life that, you know, I never had. Right. Um, exactly. That we're not dependent on anybody else, you know? Was there ever any giving from the group? In other words, you were mentioning you chauffeured Sharon around, or there was work that was being done sometimes. Was there, I mean, was that ever a paid gig or was it just, oh, I have the privilege of driving Sharon around now? That is the, the, the best rhetorical question I've heard all day. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> they just don't. I mean, yeah. the thing is, they don't, but they seem like they do. I mean, it's the classic narcissists makes you think that, Right. They're so good to you and they're doing so much good for you, but they're really just taking from you. I mean, we paid for the privilege of doing forced labor for them. Right. For what, what kind of forced normal. labor did, situation did you get into there? Well, when we went to Montana, we were constantly building and working and maintaining this property. I figured that was the case. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, you know, we were doing all this recruiting, which took an enormous amount of time because you could imagine not everybody is interested in, in this yeah, or the, their criteria were very specific and to find a match hard, um, to do that. Um, we were building our the space where we met 
Um, Sharon's other homes needed to be worked. People cleaned and cooked for Sharon. I cooked for her. I was a chauffeur for her. I never got gas money or anything. <laughs> you know, My I mean, it was just uh, you, you name it. You so she it. really kind of created her own little catering army for herself for her life. Yeah, I mean, and people did. Uh, you know, people bought her an apartment in the plaza for eight million dollars. My goodness. Yeah. My goodness. But you never heard of her, right? No. No, I actually never have. This is the first. I mean, I've, I've now Googled her. I see who she is here. Um, died in uh, January 22nd, 2021. And uh, her Wikipedia page straight up says she was an American actress and cult leader. Yeah. Well, I mean, wow. um, here's the thing. It's not well known because nobody has written about her. Except me, I, you know, it's the first book about it. I have a blog um, where I talk about it and it's not anonymous. There is another blog out there. It's excellent, but that had been anonymous until, you know, a few years ago. So there's really, people don't want to talk about it. Not because they're afraid of getting sued like Scientology. And you're pretty brave for doing this because, you know, I don't know what they've done to you, but they will, they come after you. My group has, doesn't have to come after you because nobody wants to talk about it. Um, because they're ashamed. Right. Um, and, um, afraid of having feel, feel like, you know, they'd have been so stupid to be in a cult. I mean, it's, it's quite uh, amazing and sad, but um, I had to come up, overcome my um, self blame um, uh, because I was a victim here. I was not uh, to blame That's for right. this. That's right. Exactly. And I believe me, I understand that. Curve, yeah. You know, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really get it. And the, and the, and the fact that you are speaking out is actually a very good thing. And it will lead to more. And I and I see here that you know there have been a couple articles this year in the um, from the New York Post and Daily Mail about this Odyssey study group is what they're calling it. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. You know, and there are some people now. I'm I'm just looking at headlines here, but you know, as of uh, September 21, there's a Stephanie Rosenberg and Marjorie Hockman filed a lawsuit against the group. So there's, yes. so now there's, you know, you, you this matters. I, I, I want to highlight this. You speaking up, you writing a book, you going on podcasts, other people stepping up and, and, and doing something about it. This is the kind of exposure that people need to wake up to realize, oh, this happens to ordinary people, rich people, you know, all the time. It's not just, you know, this is not a poor person phenomenon. This tends to target uh, you know, more upper crust, middle class, uh, upper class right. people, because it's all right. about the money, you know? Right. So I, uh, this is right on, and, and I should have um, acknowledged Stephanie and Marjorie because they put their names out there and are suing them. Yeah, that's They're bold. being attacked in this lawsuit yeah. by the cult as being uh, disgruntled. Of course. Of course, now, they, have, they have an axe to grind. Their suit is valid. I've read the suit. Their suit, they're, you know, they're, cl they're claiming that they did all this work without getting paid. And hopefully they'll win. Let's see what happens. Um, yep. but yeah, we'll be suit. watching that. Well, it's yeah. interesting because they don't have what they don't have going for them. And this is, um, is, a, is, a, is a plus for, for you guys, is they're not a religious group. So they don't get to hide behind the First Amendment, which is um, which makes them more like Nexium makes trafficking and and nonsense that goes on in these groups a right. little easier to go after. But but I think you'll appreciate as a lawyer that we lack coercive control laws with teeth. That's right. You know, right. Well, I do think there are laws um, that some prosecutors have been able to use. Um, with success, uh, like in the Nexium trial yep. and also the Lawrence Ray trial, uh, the Sarah Lawrence cult in New York, mm. where th those trials did involve, um, you know, sex trafficking and um, forced labor yep. and um, other 
forms of uh, on other crimes. But the thing that I think that the prosecutors were willing to do and able to do in this changed environment after Me Too, you know, the Me Too, is to show that you know people can be um, psychologically manipulated into doing things that are against their interest, even though it seems to be voluntary. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the that's the coercive control element and the and the fact that there's this repeating pattern of behavior. You know, any one incident or 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 thing you could almost write off or rationalize as well, it's voluntary or they did it because they said they would or whatever, you know, you can kind of write it off. But you see this repeating pattern of this and you see bank accounts being drained and you see, you know, the, right. and lives being controlled. And this is what we really need codified so that we get these people to stop getting away with this nonsense. Uh, wholesale, yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't think existing laws are um, strong enough for it. Not yet. But not here. I think they, they have to, they have to find a good way to, to codify it. Maybe uh, it would be good. I mean, but well, you know, you might be interested in a 2016 law that the United Kingdom passed on the subject of coercive control. And if I think of it all, well, um, I'll try to send you a link or a, an article on it after the show, just so you, just for your interest, you know, because now there's a there's an effort. It was a domestic violence coercive control family domestic situation, which is now being rallied. There are there are cult exit folks and 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 people in that lane my lane who are now trying to push that law hey let's get this applied to these groups right not just to family situations right and they have successfully prosecuted uh husbands wives people who you know coercively control their spouses why not go after these cult leaders who successfully coerce groups of people at a time you know? right well, I mean, that's exactly what this lawsuit is going to try to do yeah. under existing laws, and we'll see if it works. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, the law in New York is you can't have people work for free. And, um, you know, their argument is, well, you know, it's voluntary, and our argument is uh, yeah. not mine, but their <laughs> argument, and it's, I mean, I share it. It's, it wasn't voluntary, you know, it was anything right. but, it's coerced. So we'll, we'll see if the judge goes along with it, if a jury agrees and you know, they'll see. But I, I think um, that um, it would be good to have more laws on this. Yeah. And it, it's also good, um, you know, I write about like the hallmarks of a cult. I mean, I found a lot of people have found that helpful. I list like nine things at the end of the book about what I think are the hallmarks of, of cults. And the big one is coercive control. And that separates it from things that, you know, um, that are groups where people are maybe, you know, passionate or even fanatical about it. But just because you're fanatical about something doesn't mean that it's a cult. That's right. That's exactly right. There's a whole lot of people who are very fanatical about their sports teams, their celebrity crushes, their, right. you know, anime or whatever. And that right. does not have to be a cult. You know, you can, you can definitely be all in on something and it not right. have to be a cult, but when you add right. the coercive control on top of it, the manipulation, the abuse, uh, up to labor and sex trafficking, now we're talking about something really, truly awful. And right, you know. Well, I, I just want to add before yes. we finish a very important fact here, which is that the group is it, it exists now, but they do not um uh call themselves school anymore. They don't use the name Odyssey Study Group. They say that they're the study. They do something called the study. They don't say we have a name. They don't mention Gurchev or Spensky. People do not read Gurchev or Spensky. So new recruits are really left in the dark. And they're, they're also discouraged from looking on the internet. But most people who are in their 20s, like that's like saying to you and I don't drink Coca-Cola out of a can. <laughs> right. like, Good luck we, with that. <laughs> we were raised on that stuff. Exactly. Like, what are you going to, you know, only drink it from a bottle. It'll be like, go to hell, you know? Exactly. So the kids are not um, obeying that. Some are, I guess, but the ones who are not are calling me and, right. you know, 
that's great. So I hope if any of you all out there, uh, if they call it the study or whatever, that's, you know, give me a call and I'll tell you what you should do. Excellent. Get out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get the hell out of there. Run, don't walk. Well, once again, let me let me let me promote this for you. This is the Manhattan cult story. And it is my unbelievable true story of sex, crimes, chaos, and survival. And you can get this book. I'm looking at it here on Amazon, Kindle version, audiobook, etc. So I would uh, I definitely recommend you all check this book out. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Yes. And thank you again for taking the time to be on my show and tell us some of your story and experiences. And, you know, I think as we've shown, it lines up pretty that 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 with uh with the cult 101 model right uh but the variations can be tricky and i really wanted to highlight that that intro because it took a long time for this to get you know truly insane for you and right. people tend to think wrongly that these groups are like on you and within a you know a couple of days they're going to be draining your bank account and it's it really isn't that way you know, and no, no one would stand for that. That's right. Exactly. Nobody. Exactly. exactly. And they, they know they're, they're hucksters. So they know, they know exactly what they're doing. It's very deliberate, which also, let me just add one more thing in terms of crimes. I mean, there are laws against mail and wire fraud and um, those are federal laws and there's common law fraud, well, there's claims for fraud, but these are all frauds. Right. I mean, they promise one thing, but they're something entirely different. There's not too many people who are out of my group who aren't um, miserable in some way. Right. Probably the same with yours, too. Pretty much. Yeah. A lot of depressed, anxious folks there. I can say that. Yep. For exactly. sure. All right, Spencer. Well, again, thank you very much. And uh, and we'll wrap up now. And for folks out there in the audience, I want to thank you very much for inviting us into your home and listening to what we had to say this week. I hope you found it entertaining, informative, and maybe slightly educational. That is the goal here. And of course, if we are accomplishing that, then uh, feel free to help support the channel through PayPal, Patreon, etc. Links are in the description section to this video and every video on my channel. All right, folks, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.